guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Q&A show. I know I've been, well, not really lazy, just busy. I've owed you one of these for a few days here, so happy to catch up. It's uh, scotthorton.org for all the stuff. Libertarianinstitute.org, too. Um, so, yeah, it's April the 19th. Uh, it used to be called Patriot's Day. Uh, you know what? I think I used to think that Lexington and Concord broke out on April the 19th, but then I think I got corrected about that, and that's actually not right. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. What it means to me is Waco. And uh, also the Oklahoma City bombing, of course. Death by Government Day. Um, the final day of the Waco siege. April 19th, 1993. Which was uh, incidentally... I'm not sure if it was coincidentally or just incidentally. Or what the difference between those two things is, actually, now that I think about it. But it was the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the final Nazi assault on the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland in World War II. Uh, when Bill Clinton sent what you know as JSOC, uh, or the Delta Force, the Army Combat Applications Group. That's what they call it. And uh, what they did was portions of B Squadron they machine-gunned and burned and bombed and killed the Branch Davidians. And then they called it a cult suicide, like Jim Jones and the Flavor Aid. But it wasn't true. So, um, you know, I don't know. I could talk about it for 51 days, right? So what's the point to me? Well, the point to me is that I never believed him. I remember walking into my friend's house and his mom says, look, they're burning it, they're burning it. And I says, who's burning it? And she says, well, they say that they're burning it. Uh-huh. And all we can see, though, is the front of the house. So why should we believe them? I was just a kid, what, 16 or something? I, I guess I was 16. Um, maybe I was 15. Whatever. I'm not going to count right now on my fingers. That would be embarrassing. Um, but I just didn't believe it. In fact, I remember the first time I saw the initial pictures of the raid on the night of February the 28th, where I thought, what are they at a motel or something? It was because they were up on the roof, but just at my very first glance, you know, sometimes you see a plastic bag blowing in the wind and you think it's a cat for a moment or something. At the first glance, am I looking at a motel where they're on the outside, you know, balcony, the second floor raiding a room here? What is this? Oh, okay, it's some church compound thing, huh? So, as Ali Sufan of the FBI would say, bottom line, up front, the ATF fired first. They admit, at least to kill the dogs who were in a pen near the front door, but who were completely penned in, and were harmless dogs anyway. Um, and I believe also... And although this is not, you know, really provable 100% either way, uh, but I believe that they fired the first shots, uh, the first couple of shots 
at human beings as well when David Koresh opened the door uh, when they arrived for the raid and one bullet missed him and killed his father-in-law standing right behind him, hit him right in the chest. And I'm pretty, I'm reasonably certain, I think uh, upon investigation you would be too, uh, reasonably certain that those were the first shots fired. It's clear that Koresh opened the door unarmed and said, whoa, whoa, wait, let's talk. And that was it. The gunfight broke out. And the jury, by the way, later when it came to the trials of the few who survived the uh, massacre at the end, they were all acquitted of murder and conspiracy to commit murder because the San Antonio federal grand jury found that they had the right of self-defense, that the ATF used unreasonable deadly force initiated unreasonable deadly force and that any human being has the right to defend themselves even from a police officer if they initiate unwarranted deadly force that's the law that all humans have the right to defend themselves even branch davidians so the jury found that the atf started the fight and then just like any traffic stop, just like anything else, all the cops could do is just escalate and escalate and escalate. They laid military siege to the place. They brought in top-tier special forces. And then ultimately they killed the people. And the proof that the Branch Davidians were machine-gunned and burned comes from the FBI's own plane flying overhead. And it's forward-looking infrared footage. And it's beyond any question, even as analyzed by one of the primary developers of the FLIR technology, that what you're looking at here is gunshots. No question about it. The men get out of the back of the tank and they fire toward the building as it's burning before and after. And according to Gene Cullen, a former CIA officer, and Stephen Barry, a former Special Forces sergeant, both of them uh, claim that members of Delta Force admitted to them that they had, in fact, been in a firefight with the Branch Davidians. That's the words of Gene Cullen. And pulling triggers, in the words of Stephen Barry. I'm not going to pull up all my sound bites for you in this. But Janet Reno, she did order the raid. But only Bill Clinton could have ordered the Delta Force into action that day, not the Attorney General. As his responsibility, and he later admitted that it was true. And you know what? He also later admitted that he sat there and watched the building burn with James Riotti and John Wong, his Chinese intelligence money laundering connections. In the same deposition, he admitted that under oath. And they got away with it. You should know, kids. That's the important part. They called it a suicide, and everyone, the American people, took the government side, took the FBI's side, believed, oh, they wanted so desperately to believe that it was a suicide, that it was all Koresh's fault, that any other women and children in there, whether under his spell or otherwise, somehow deserved it for interrupting their game shows and soap operas for six weeks in a row. Are you kidding me? 
You think the penalty for that is less than a full-scale massacre? And the American people wanted to believe. They loved it. And they told the pollsters they supported the tank attack, even after the tank attack clearly led to a fire and the horrible deaths of Texans, civilians, women and children, elderly people. And they weren't all burned. A lot of them were poisoned, gassed to death with the CS gas before they were burned. A lot of them were gassed to death with hydrogen cyanide, which is what CS gas becomes once you burn it. A far more gruesome death. Many of them, especially the women and children, were crushed by falling concrete from the one concrete room, the so-called vault, the Davidians called it, the bunker, according to the Clinton administration, where women and children were hiding under wet blankets and towels trying to keep the CS poison gas banned by the Geneva Conventions off of themselves and each other. And then they were crushed when the tanks and and later the explosives went off when the Delta Force put a bomb on the top of that one story. It was the three-story part of the building, if you're picturing it. The bottom floor of that was where the vault was. And that's where the Army Delta Force put a bomb and uh, and bombed those the women and girls who hadn't already been poisoned and crushed, women and children who hadn't already been poisoned and crushed hiding in that room. It was only women and children hiding in that room. They pretended to believe that it was David Koresh's command bunker. We inserted massive gas in there, Bob Ricks, FBI spokesman, bragged and boasted. And here's how you too can know all of this. First and foremost, you should read Carol Moore, The Davidian Massacre. Read it and weep. Um, and there's more than that. The Ashes of Waco by Dick J. Revis is good. I can't remember the title anymore, but there's one by David Thibodeau, who is Thibodeau, who is one of the survivors there. I lost my interviews with him. He was actually my first couple of interviews on Free Radio Austin in 99 and 2000. But I don't have those archives anymore for you. You know, David Thibodeau. Um, and then, uh, Importantly, the documentaries, and I know you like everybody likes watching videos better anyway. So check out Waco: The Rules of Engagement, Waco: A New Revelation, and then if you're really into it and you want the coup de gras there, uh, so to speak, it's the Fleer Project. And these three movies, I guess I won't go too far into depth, but it just explains how the whole thing didn't have to happen at all. And just how horrible it was. And just how horrible all the lies were. And to me, the part I'll never forget is how horrible the American people were about it. It was sort of the Barack Obama effect. It was Bill Clinton, the brand new liberal Democrat, dream come true, dreamboat president, the boy from hope to all the liberals. After 12 years in the darkness of Reagan and Bush, which that much was understandable. But then, massacring a bunch of Trans Am driving rednecks, a bunch of gun-owning kooks out on the Texas plain, 
They weren't going to let that bother them. Hell no. Not any more than a drone strike on a wedding in Yemen. Liberals. Alex Coburn stuck up for them. And Bill Hicks stuck up for them. But that was about it on the entire American left. And, um, yeah, <clears throat> you know, here's the thing, too. This came up today in discussion with John Pfeffer on the show when we we're talking about North Korea. Because when he started describing the situation with North Korea, he said, well, the American narrative is that he's crazy. He's got illegal weapons. He's horrible to his own people. And yet because he's crazy, he's impossible to negotiate with or deal with. And so something violent must be done to teach him a lesson and get the point across and save the day. And where have I heard that before? Well, it's 24 years ago. It's exactly what they said about the Branch Davidians. David Koresh, he's crazy. You can't negotiate with him because he's just too irrational. So what's the point of even trying to talk with a man like that? Wow, what a great premise to base your military siege on. And then, of course, yes, he has illegal weapons, according to the assertion. They never proved that he had any fully automatic weapons on that location whatsoever, even after the, the attack. They just claimed that these have been converted to fully automatic. Well, they didn't even prove that that was true. They just claimed it. And then, secondly... They didn't even attempt to demonstrate when they might have been converted to full automatic. Like, for example, maybe during the siege, not before. And ultimately, that goes to show that the entire raid was over a $200 tax. There was no crime that had been committed under that, other than that a tax allegedly had not been paid in the first place. But they said he's crazy, he's got illegal weapons, he's bad to his own people. The terrible child abuse. And so we just can't wait anymore. We must use violence to end the situation now, not later. And, and only a fool, only a naive, gullible clown would think that there could be some peaceful, negotiated resolution to this thing. Let us no longer entertain such silliness. Go ahead and do the hard work that needs to be done here. You see, that's all you got to do. You just got to phrase it like it's all just so necessary. And they did it. And then as Bill Clinton said, ah, a bunch of religious fanatics murdered themselves. What does that have to do with me? I don't know. And the American people were like, yeah, you're right. Oh, because I left out the right. The liberals didn't say anything except for Alex Coburn. He doesn't count. He's a leftist, not a liberal. Was. Anyway. But the right wing... There was some on the, you know, too far right for the Republican Party right who cared. But the Republican Party right, you know, Rush Limbaugh and them, that was just another case of law and order doing what must be done. Everybody knows that. G. Gordon Liddy was anti-gun control enough. He called the ATF jackbooted thugs at the time. But that was as harsh as he ever got on the issue. He was no real champion of the truth or justice on what happened to those people. But virtually the entire right simply lined up behind the cops because they're the cops. Even under the command of Bill Clinton, they're still cops. 
And so that means even if the cops came to their house and killed their own wife, they'd still back the cops anyway because, well, the cops created us. They have the right to kill us if they want to, right? Everybody knows that, according to conservatives. That's where rights come from. Cops give them to you. And they take them away if they feel like it. So, there you go. That's the history of the Waco massacre, according to Scott. Go look at Waco. You know what? Seriously, if you don't know about this story and you're even slightly interested, really, go look at these movies. They're really good. Waco, The Rules of Engagement, and Waco, A New Revelation. And then you will know. All right. Now, the Oklahoma bombing. Here's what I'll tell you about the Oklahoma bombing. I've been good on this since day one, too. But anyway, years after the Oklahoma bombing, a guy named Jesse Trinidou got a letter from Timothy McVeigh in prison. Timothy McVeigh, who had been convicted for the Oklahoma bombing. And the letter said, I know who killed your brother and why. He was mistaken for a guy named Richard Lee Guthrie, who... I don't know exactly how McVeigh said it, but something, something was part of the investigation into the Oklahoma City bombing. And this guy, Jesse Trenadu, whose brother, Kenneth, had indeed been murdered in a federal holding facility in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1995, in the summer of 1995, didn't know what to make of that. A letter from Timothy McVeigh? And then he got another letter from a reporter from Oklahoma, the McCurtain County Gazette, named J.D. Cash. And Cash said, I need to talk to you. Are you sitting down? I think I know who killed your brother and why. And Jesse Trinidou said, no, don't tell me. And J.D. Cash said, I think your brother got mixed up in a case of mistaken identity. They thought that he was Richard Lee Guthrie one of the suspects in the Oklahoma City bombing. And Jesse Trinidou went, oh my God. What a rabbit hole. Well, Jesse's a lawyer. And it turns out that when he and his family had first been informed that his brother had been killed and that the government planned to cremate his body, Jesse intervened in ways that, you know, his poor old mother could not have. He said, oh no, you don't. I'm Jesse Trinidou Esquire, pal, and you're not cremating nothing. Give me my brother's body right now. And they did. And then, oh my God, this guy didn't commit suicide. This guy was clearly beaten to death and possibly over a period of hours or something. Holy moly, look at what happened to him. You can just put Kenneth Trinidou in Google Images and you'll see for yourself. And so Jesse Trinidou took it to court and he's been fighting it in court ever since then. And there's every reason in the world to believe that the reason that his brother, Kenneth, was killed was because the cops thought he was Richard Guthrie and they were torturing him, taking revenge against him, and possibly maybe just trying to get him to admit that he was Richard Guthrie. And the poor cops, it turns out that literally these guys both had the same red mullet haircut the same handlebar mustache, the same dragon tattoo, or, you know, close enough dragon tattoo on their right arms, 
the same big upper body build, driving a truck of the same description. So you kind of can't blame him for mistaking the identity. He fit the description just too perfectly, like your worst nightmare where you are the spitting image of some stranger who did some horrible thing. That's what happened. So you could see why they made the mistake that they made. He fit the description in many ways and even was a former bank robber, which is sort of part of this. Um, and so a lot of what Jesse has found over the years then has been corroboration of what a lot of people already knew, that Timothy McVeigh had friends in the Aryan Republican Army, Ring of Nazis, that they were all flip states witnesses or undercover informants or possibly even agents provocateur, especially in the case of a German national named Andre Karl Strassmeyer. And that the government let them get away with it. Because I guess their most plausible excuse that they claim, not that it's good enough, but I could see them reasoning this. That if they charge multiple people with it, then that would provide reasonable doubt that McVeigh was really the ringleader of the thing. And they wanted to make sure to really execute McVeigh. So they didn't want to open the books up into any other questions of who else might have been involved in the thing. And so, amazingly, I mean, you might not even believe me. You'll have to go check the AP and the Rocky Mountain News and the, uh, is it the Denver Post? I forget now. And all the coverage of the trial back then. But they didn't produce one witness to put McVeigh at the scene of the crime, even though 24 different people saw McVeigh that morning. Well, why is that, Scott? Because, audience, every single person, all 24 of them, who saw, you know what, that number 24 isn't right. That's the number of cameras that saw, uh, th or that were available that morning. It was at least a dozen witnesses. I forget now, what the hell. It was more than 10 witnesses saw McVeigh that morning and with someone else riding shotgun. And so therefore no one was called. Uh, to place McVeigh at the scene of the crime. Instead, they called children who had lost their parents and siblings to testify about how sad they were. And in fact, there was a clip of one of McVeigh's jurors on 60 Minutes explaining that, well, he didn't have an alibi. I kept waiting, she said, for someone to come and testify. He couldn't have done it because he was with me that day. And that never happened. But you see what's going on there is she's shifting the burden of proof to him. And saying, here the government is saying the most horrible thing about this guy. Well, where's his defense? If he's not really putting up a defense, then it must be true, I guess. But that's not how it's supposed to work. Why couldn't they prove he did it? Why did this lady have to rationalize this way to convict this man? Who she obviously believed was guilty correctly. Of course, he was guilty. But why wouldn't they prove the case in court? Because they couldn't prove the case in court without implicating John Doe 2. And John Doe 2 was either Michael Brescia or it was Richard Lee Guthrie, about 99% on give or take one of those. I'm, my money's on Guthrie, I guess. Um, and it's the case about these Nazis, see, and this is the bottom line, that never even mind the possibility of Strassmeyer being an agent provocateur behind this plot in a way, which I think is plausible. 
Um, possibly, yeah, probably even uh, the likely answer is never even mind that. The fact of the matter is, all of these guys were known to the FBI and were either, as I said, informants or flip states witnesses almost to a man. And the government had prior knowledge that there was going to be an attack. The ATF knew and the FBI knew. And in fact, I mentioned Bob Ricks, the FBI spokesman during Waco, who boasted about putting massive gas in that concrete bunker with nothing but women and children in it. Well, he was in charge of the Tulsa office two years later. And he was the FBI agent who ordered the ATF to back off of their planned raid of a neo-Nazi compound in eastern Oklahoma called Elohim City, where these Aryan Republican Army bank robbers tended to hang out, and where they had an informant inside Elohim City named Carol Howe. And Carol Howe was reporting that there's a plot to blow up a federal building going on at, Oklahoma, going on at Elohim City. The ATF was prepared to do a Waco-type raid. You can kind of see why the FBI would say, whoa, don't do that again. Leave it to us. But then, what did they do? Nothing. And the bombing happened anyway. So you could see how they might have a good reason to pretend that none of that ever happened. And just sweep all that under the rug. And pretend that everybody just got caught by surprise. But there are plenty of reasons uh, to know. I mean, it's, it's beyond a doubt. That's not true. The bomb squad was there that morning. They left before the attack. They were there from like 7 to 8.30 or something like that, waiting around. Didn't attack never happen? They left. Too soon. The ATF agents admitted that they had been warned on their pagers, don't come to work today. The federal judge from the courthouse across the street, Wayne Alley, told the Portland Oregonian, that he had been warned not to go to work, to go ahead and take a vacation. April 19th, there's going to be a problem around here. He was told that. He wasn't threatened by a Nazi. He was told that by the cops. And then in the shock of the thing, he got off script. He wasn't supposed to say that to the damn paper back home in Oregon where he's from, but he did. And they printed it. Now, what other explanation for Judge Wayne Alley saying that is there then it's true that they knew there was going to be an attack and that they warned him not to be there. Which does, in fact, raise the question of whether they deliberately failed to stop the attack. Whether they, on one hand, just knew that there was nothing they could do. Geez, I guess we lost them. They put the GPS on a decoy truck, and we don't know where the real bomb truck is. Oh, no. Was it that? Or was it worse than that? It's a fair question. It's a fair question when the ATF knew not to be there and when the federal judge from the courthouse across the street knew not to be there, but the women and children of the Agriculture Department and the Social Security Administration were still there. And then the ATF shows up minutes later in full battle dress, ready to pretend to be heroes. When one of the ATF agents made up a ridiculous lie about being trapped in an elevator that then after, when the bomb went off, it, the elevator went into free fall. And now he heroically climbed out and escaped and all of this stuff. It wasn't true at all. Both elevator repair companies in Oklahoma City said that's pure fantasy. That was the quote of one of them. Pure fantasy. Didn't happen. 
And there's also, and I know because 9-11 has really jaded me for this kind of thing too. I'm sorry, but it has. But I think that there's at least real legitimate reason to speculate that there were demolition charges attached to columns inside that building. Scientific evidence, particularly put forward by Ray Brown of the U.S. Geological Survey and uh, the University of Oklahoma in Norman, I guess it was, where he compared the seismograph data from the first bombing, the attack, versus the controlled demolition of the rest of the building six weeks later or so when they were done cleaning it out and getting everything out of there. And they finally demolished the, the uh, rest of what was left of it. And he compared that data and he said, you know, he sees absolute similarity with much of the information except that on the first day there's also clearly this separate explosion, which is the truck bomb. And he sees a corresponding air blast that goes with the truck bomb and the massive ground wave from that. But he also has this rumbling ground wave that happened preceding the massive ground blast of the truck going off. Which does correspond with witness statements, including by survivor VZ Lawton on my show, has told me that yes, the building was shaking before the glass blew in. I have a clip of a guy... I played these before. I'm not going to play all my sound bites for you today, but there's a clip of a guy explaining that he thought it was an earthquake and he's from California. So he went and hid under his desk because that's what you do. If you're from California, you know that, hey, find a void space in an earthquake. And so that's why he was sheltered when the glass blew in. Um, or actually, I'm screwing that up. Yeah, no, that was his story. And then it was VZ Lawton's story was that a plaque had fallen off the wall and hit him in the head. Because of the shaking of the building. And so he had fallen because he got knocked on the head. And that was why he had been sheltered from the flying glass. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that, if you consider that solid evidence or not. But it, it does raise real questions. Uh, as well as, although J.D. Cash dismissed that, by the way. J.D. Cash did not think that there were multiple bombs. J.D. Cash believed, and this is its whole other separate scandal then, that the... Three different false alarms then that extra demolition charges, undetonated devices had been found in the building, that those actually were lies told by the ATF to cover up the fact that they had explosives in the building, not set to the columns, but that they weren't supposed to have at all, and including even a tow missile, you know, like the kind Barack Obama liked to give to Al-Qaeda in Syria, the wire-guided anti-tank missile. And they had it there for some sting operation or something. They were not supposed to have it in that building. So when the bomb went off, they went and they had called those fake alarms to disguise the fact that they had explosives and whatever other contraband. I think grenades and all kinds of things in there they weren't supposed to have. Well, but guess what? All day long, three different times, the rescue efforts were called off. The firefighters, all the first responders were called back. And people who were trapped and were in the middle of being freed were left to die. I'm sorry, they're calling us back. I have to go. Hang in there. And then they get back and they're dead over a false alarm. So which was it? A real demolition charge that they lied and covered up? Or a false alarm over some other explosives that the ATF had, contraband that they weren't supposed to have, that they lied and covered that up at the time? 
as innocent people's lives were lost waiting to be rescued when the rescuers were called back over and over and over all day long. He'd think I don't remember. And anyway, uh, why would McVeigh take the blame for the whole thing? Because to him it's credit, that's why. Because he is a Nazi and he thought he did the right thing. By the way, let me let me back up uh, something that I said about the ATF informant Carol Howe there, because this is really important. You can find the transcript in a book. It's got a really shoddy title, okay? But publishers do this to people sometimes. The book is called The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, and it's by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, the reporter from the London Telegraph. And but it's not about Bill Clinton really. It's about the the preface is Waco, then is Oklahoma City, and then is uh, cocaine dealing in Arkansas. And Vince Foster, I guess. So, which Vince Foster, if he was murdered, it was the FBI, not Bill Clinton who did it. Bill Clinton was his friend. It's the FBI. That's my theory. Although, actually, I think he killed himself. But if if it was murder, it was the FBI. (laughs) But anyway, over Waco. Uh, If he killed himself, it was over Waco. If he was murdered, it was over Waco. But anyway, in that book... Sorry, me and my tangents, you know? In that book, he reproduces the deposition sworn testimony of a woman named Angela Finley, who I think now has a different last name, but don't let that throw you. Uh, Angela Finley was the ATF handler for Carol Howe, the informant. She was a former Nazi who decided she hated these guys and went and volunteered to be a rat for the cops, okay? So, Finley, her handler... Her ATF, full-fledged ATF agent, officer, handler, admits under oath that Carol Howe drove her around Oklahoma City claiming that this is the route that we took when me and all the terrorist Nazis were driving around casing buildings to Target. And that one of them, she concedes, Angela Finley concedes, Carol Howe pointed out the Alfred P. Murrah building. And said, this is one of the ones that they want to target. This or the IRS building. So we went here, and then we took it right here, and then we stopped at Jack in the Box and whatever, and this is the building that we targeted that they were talking about. And that Carol Howe had taken her ATF agent handler, Angela Finley, on this trip before the attack. Uh, And, of course, later, as soon as the attack happened, Carol Howe came forward, and then they all tried to lie and smear her and attack her. Oh, and I forgot about this. They prosecuted her. This lady had a bunch of Nazi propaganda and some sawed-off pieces of pipe and stuff like that in her garage because she was playing the part of a Nazi undercover as an informant for the ATF. And you know what they did? They pretended that that was explosives, and they tried to prosecute her on felonies to prevent her from testifying at McVeigh's trial. And McVeigh's lawyer tried to get her to testify, and the prosecutor said, Your Honor, she's under felony indictment herself right now. Are you crazy? And Your Honor was like, Yeah, you're right, prosecutors. We don't want to hear from her. On a sawed-off piece of pipe that they told her to have. Yes, I know, Your Honor, it looks like an innocent sawed-off piece of pipe, but it's surrounded by all of these booklets with swastikas on them. And just pretending that, I guess, we're not all already in on the secret that she was an undercover ATF informant infiltrating the Aryan Republican Army. 
So, oh yeah, no, not that there's a major cover-up going on in the case of the murder of 168 people or anything. I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea that they would indict on completely false and bogus trumped-up charges the star witness for the defense in the trial of the century. Or was that O.J. Simpson that you were so concerned about in 1995 and 1996? I'm sorry. Was I trying to distract you with something important while you were paying attention to your little race bait football murder? Sorry. I know. Not you guys. Everybody except you. That's what I meant. I like you. All right. This thing has already gone on too long, and I got to answer a couple more here real quick. Somebody asked me, what is the deal with North Korea? And the deal with North Korea is, um, well, listen to the John Pfeffer interview. Read, read Pfeffer. I've been asked this on Twitter, too, in different contexts. Read John Pfeffer. Read Doug Bandow. Read Ted Carpenter. Both of those guys from Cato, uh, especially Bandow, is just absolutely great on North Korea. And the deal is that President Horton could give them a, a security guarantee. We promise not to attack you. We're dropping unilaterally all sanctions against you. We sue immediately for a final peaceful uh, uh, conclusion to the Korean War of the 1950s and a real peace treaty, not just this flimsy ceasefire agreement we've had. We're going to pull our troops out of there. We're going to float our Navy at least half an ocean away from there. And we're just going to let the people of North Korea know that I don't give a damn what Bill Clinton, George Bush, or Barack Obama said. All that is over. Friends, friends, hey, Earth, hey, all of mankind, look, we're completely repudiating past policy. We want nothing but to be friends with the North Koreans. We're dropping all our sanctions and all our threats. And we're saying, let's work it out. Now the ball is in your court. And I guarantee you we'd have a deal. He sent Dennis Rodman and every one of his friends and you just, you kill them with kindness. And that would work. That's what they want, is a security guarantee. Not to start a nuclear war with us. They have those nuclear weapons as a deterrent to protect themselves from us. Just like Saddam didn't have. Just like Gaddafi didn't have. Now Iran, they had a half a one. They had a civilian program that could be turned into a weapons program if you push it. Smart. Not quite enough to provoke an attack, but enough to, in fact, deter one. Okay, brilliantly played, Ayatollah. The North Koreans said, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Bye. Left the nonproliferation treaty and started making nukes because of George Bush. Because George Bush broke the agreed framework deal that Bill Clinton had maintained. I saw someone, a right-wing hawk on Twitter the other day, uh, quoting a Obama administration official saying that the North Korea deal of the 90s was the template for the beginning of the Iran deal. Well, that's really hardly true. They're entirely different situations in every single way, pretty much. Um, but then the smart Alec remark was, oh, and we see how well that worked out. Well, it was George W. Bush who repudiated the deal. You know what you do? Google search this. Whatever is your favorite brand of search engine. Whichever one you feel protects your privacy the best. You just uh, search up how Bush pushed 
North Korea to nukes. How Bush pushed North Korea to nukes by the great Gordon Prather. And there's the whole story right there. They weren't making nukes. They had a deal with the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration never even lived up to their side of it. They're supposed to give them money and fuel oil and build them a light water reactor. Donald Rumsfeld's company got the contract. But they never went forward and did it. But the North Koreans still weren't making nukes. They still stayed within the treaty. It wasn't until Richard Pearl and David Frum and George W. Bush called them part of the axis of evil. Get this, an alliance with Osama, the Ayatollah, and Saddam Hussein. I know, kids, you can't believe that. There were more than five or ten people in all of North America dumb enough to believe in that in 2002, right? Oh yeah, but dumb ruled in 2002. And so that was the policy they pushed. And even though I guess they say that they were working on the beginnings of a uranium enrichment program way back then, um, that was the only violation would be that they hadn't declared it outright. But it doesn't mean that it was actually a weapons program at that point or that they had enriched, uh, you know, really any uranium at all. We don't even know that they had at that point just because they were putting together some centrifuges, maybe. And there's no reason to believe that they ever made weapons-grade uranium at all, in fact. Because here we are now in 2017, and all of their nukes have been plutonium bombs. Plutonium harvested from their nuclear reactor that runs on, what, medium-enriched or low-enriched uranium. So we don't even, which I think even old fuel that they got from the Soviets. Um, and... In fact, the easiest kind of atom bomb to set off is a Hiroshima-type bomb, which is a uranium gun-type nuke, where you basically shoot a uranium bullet into a uranium target and create your supercritical mass there. A big a shotgun slug, really, is more like it. Uh, that's a gun-type nuke. It's the easiest way to set off a fission bomb, and yet they've never done an atomic test of a uranium gun-type nuke. All of their nuke tests so far have been plutonium implosion bombs or undetermined. But there's at least no evidence, no indication that they've ever even tested a uranium Hiroshima type bomb. So whatever violation uh, they had committed in 2002 was certainly something that even now apparently would be negotiable. Whether they move forward with a uranium bomb or not. In other words, there's no reason at all that George W. Bush had to abrogate the agreed framework, but he did it anyway. And then, as, as Pfeffer talked about on the show today, in 2008, Christopher Hill, working for George Bush, convinced the president, let me go over there and try again and work a deal here, man. And he got really far, but they ended up betraying it. They put the North Koreans back on the terrorism list just to scotch the deal, basically. They had shut down their reactor. They had only done one nuclear weapons test at this point. And then now since then, they've done four more. So um, they can be negotiated with. They're ruthless, not nuts. Was it Pfeffer? Was it uh, Ted Carpenter, I guess, on this show? Said, come on, you know, don't confuse ruthless with insane. Is it a brutal dictator dictatorship that'll kill you? Sure, they'll kill you. But that doesn't mean that they're irrational. That doesn't mean you got to treat them like Koresh, like they're just too nuts to be dealt with and must instead be attacked. 
and also something else we talked about with with Fever on the show today, which I think is absolutely true, is that Donald Trump is in the best position to make peace with Russia, with China, with North Korea, with Iran, with anybody else we got a problem with. And and to tell the media to go to hell. You don't like that I'm making peace? I don't care. The American people support me. But the thing is, is he's just too damn dim to see the world that way. To see the advantage he has in being a Manhattan skyscraper tycoon. Republican. Capitalist. That means patriot by definition. That means that even all of this Russia BS aside, and oh, it's such BS. All this stuff about him being a Russian agent aside, the American people don't really believe in that stuff. And if they really saw him saying, I don't really care what you loser Democrats say, I'm making peace with Russia anyway. We're going to dismantle half our nuclear weapons stock. How do you like that? I'm going to go to Beijing and we're going to work out a deal where everybody's happy. Um, I'm going to go to North Korea. I'm going to hand this guy a big fat security guarantee and a kiss on his cheek. Let's be friends, pal. If Nixon could be friends with Mao Zedong, then Donald Trump can get along with Kim Jong-un. And again, the rest of D.C. can go to hell because when it comes down to it, that's the beauty of being the president. He's the dictator of the planet Earth. He can do whatever he wants and they can't do anything about it. He could start a war or he could completely negate the possibility of one. And then let them cry blue bloody murder about, no, we want you to bomb Assad. We want you to bomb Tehran. You know, we want you to bomb... Uh, the Ayatollah, I should stick with my metaphors and things. The names. We want you to bomb Assad and Khamenei and Un. And then attack him for not. Attack him for refusing. Attack him for making peace. And see how far that gets you, you Hillary Clintonites. You disgusting creatures. You know what I mean? It should be so easy for him to take advantage right now and say, if Nixon, and that's what he could say every single day, too. He's Donald Trump. He can repeat himself. If Nixon can be friends with Mao, who is the worst human ever, even worse than Woodrow Wilson, who spawned him. I mean, come on, Mao. You can't beat Mao. Mao. He was like Pol Pot, only... 10,000 times worse or something, right? I'm not good at math, but he was a lot worse. He was Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin combined when it came to causing the death of innocent people. So, if we can uh, choose to make friends with a guy like that because that's the best solution to a guy like that, then why can't we do that in Korea and Iran and everything else too? You know I'm right because I am. All right, then someone asked me about uh, what's, a, what's an advisor compared to an actual soldier? Well, usually that means the Rangers or, you know, Delta or SEALs, but usually it means like Rangers, second tier special forces guys, Green Berets, who, um, or if it's the Marine Corps, MARSOC or Force Recon guys. And then what they do is they're basically, as Eric Margulies would say, uh, referring to the old British Empire, white officers with native troops. That's what it means. Advisors means American officers in charge of others, you know, acting as the infantry. So right now we have a few thousand, I don't know, 5,000 advisors running the battle for Mosul in northwestern Iraq and commanding 
to one degree or another, cooperating with and commanding Iraqi Kurdish Peshmerga, uh, the Iraqi Shiite army, it's virtually a Shiite Arab army, um, the Shiite militias, the very Sunni militias actually that are helping fight, uh, there are some, and uh, I guess telling the Russians, don't bother, we've got this, of course, running the, the air war over Mosul right now. So that's the model, basically. And this is what we see in Africa right now. You know, if you want to trip out one afternoon, Google Nick Turtz and all the work he's done on JSOC and SOCOM in Africa. That's the Joint Special Operations Command and the Special Operations Command, the top and second tier special forces. So that's basically what they're doing. They have these, you know, training missions, but then also they help set the priorities of all of these different national governments in the region and standardize their equipment as American made and, you know, the whatever point, whatever NATO round and all of that kind of thing uh, is a big part of it. And in fact, you know, I've mentioned this on the show before. I guess I have it here, don't I? Um, the great quote about AFRICOM, uh, that's the African command it used to be divided by the Atlantic Command and the Central Command and this and that because Africa wasn't its own priority. It was a lower priority in the Cold War, but they created the new African Command. And then these quotes, especially to a libertarian, are just so perfectly telling, I think. Uh, from the New York Times, with the United States military out of Iraq, oh, this is from 2013, so in between Iraq War II and Iraq War III, with the United States military out of Iraq and pulling out of Afghanistan, the Army is looking for new missions around the world. Quote, well, that's quoting the New York Times. Then this is them quoting uh, the general. As we reduce the rotational requirement to combat areas, we can use these forces to great effect in Africa. David M. Rodriguez, the head of the African Command, told Congress this year looking for new missions around the world. And then this one is from DefenseNews.com from 2012. Based at Fort Riley, Kansas, the Dagger Brigade will be the first regionally aligned brigade the Army will field as part of a new initiative to keep non-deploying units engaged globally. Now that rotations to Iraq have ended, deployments to Afghanistan are winding down, and the service is looking for ways to stay globally engaged. And you gotta love the writing, too. Well, we gotta keep them engaged globally by keeping them globally engaged. Finding work for them to do. Creating conflicts where they don't need to have them. Um... So that's what they're going for there. And then someone asked me, what's the best book to read about Palestine? And, you know, I really don't know. I thought Goliath by um, Max Blumenthal was great. I never actually finished it, man, but I got like three quarters of the way through it before I got diverted off onto something else. But it's really good. And then I'm sure that uh, people would say Elon uh, Pappy or um, however you say it. He's a great one. Today... I interviewed Matthew Ho about his time in Afghanistan, and he recommended this book, The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. It's by Miko Peled, um, and he is the son of one of the founding generals of Israel after World War II, and saying, you know, 
here's the narrative and here's the reality and here's what must be done to straighten this out. And uh, Matthew Ho advised that at the top of his list today. So um, I I really wish I had a better answer for that because I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff I'm missing. But maybe send that one to Philip Weiss. Or, you know, who you ought to ask, who I ought to ask is Ramsey Baroud. You know, um, liberal Jewish anti-Zionists are great, but let's hear from some actual Palestinians. And then the answer is, again, yeah, I plead ignorance, man. I wish I knew more. I, I basically have learned most of my stuff about Israel just from the news itself and from side issues and other books, you know, that aren't necessarily centered around that conflict, but where it's important. Um. But that is a weakness, you know. I should do better about that. And then, I guess that's it, man. I can't remember. I guess I should have tried to say some sources for the Oklahoma City rant there. Uh, you can try my archives, just scotthorton.org. Go site colon scotthorton.org, Oklahoma, and see what you find there. You can read James Ridgway and Mother Jones. I actually had a great one years back um, called In Search of John Doe Two, which is a great resource Um a, a story about uh, the great Jesse Trenadu. And in fact, let me tell you this. You put in Jesse Trenadu into uh, YouTube, and there's a speech that he gives. It's called Talking Stick Productions or something like that. You'll recognize it. And it's Jesse Trenadu giving this hour-long speech about what happened to his brother and what happened to him in his court case and what all he's learned about Oklahoma City, and that'll blow your mind. That's the one right there. Like, if you wanted to show your buddy... Hey, man, check this out. That's what you show him, I think. I mean, assuming he's got the attention span to watch a man stand and talk about something instead of flashy video stuff. But that's a really good one. And then, yeah, you can check out my archives. I interviewed J.D. Cash about this over and over again before he died. He was a friend of mine, really good guy. Interviewed Will Gregg about it before he died. I'd be interviewing him right now, probably. Um... And then I've interviewed James Ridgway about it. I've interviewed Jesse Trenadu uh, many times. Um, Roger Charles uh, wrote a book with Andrew Gumbel. And it's a very slimmed down, narrowed down version of this story. But I like it for that reason. I don't think it's necessary that they had to get into every single point and have to prove them all. I think they do a good enough job of showing that, man, there's really something going on here. And you know what, for that matter... I think if you watch, um, there's a BBC show called Conspiracy Files, where you know how American TV does this especially, where they're just making fun of whatever it is you think kind of thing by pretending to entertain the possibility for half an hour as they debunk it. Well, they're a little bit more fair about it over there on the BBC, and they interviewed Danny Coulson, one of the FBI agents in charge of the investigation, who said that, yeah, this is a problematic problem, man. There's all kinds of leads here that weren't followed up. In fact, in my archives, you'll find an interview with Rick Ojeda, who was a former FBI agent, who said that his information about Elohim City uh, was not followed up and was, on top of that, withheld from the defense, the stuff that he did do. And yeah, you know, if you if you really need a very mainstream and not an ideological uh, winger type source, check out that book by uh, Roger Charles and Andrew Gumbel because it's a very, you know, official and mainstream uh, publisher that that put it out. 
it's it's a very well and you know professionally produced thing um he gave a big talk uh on a panel discussion type thing at the new america foundation with peter bergen the celebrated terrorism expert i think you can hear me rolling my eyes but still and so um that's acceptable. You ought to be able to show that to your Democrat friends. Look, here he is at the New America Foundation with Anne-Marie Slaughter and Stephen Clemens and a bunch of people who love Hillary Clinton, Peter Bergen. And they're saying, hey, there's something to this. Guilty people got away with it. And then, you know, of course, those reasons all need fleshing out. I think starting with Bob Ricks. Uh, under oath, under cross-examination, might be uh, as good a place as any. See if anybody can find Carol Howe these days, how she's doing. But all right, so that's it. I don't know what else to say. Thanks, guys. I'm Scott Horton. Check out the archives. The interviews are what's really important. ScottHorton.org slash interviews. You can find uh, all this question and answer stuff at ScottHorton.org slash show. Sign up for the RSS feeds on both of those. And then all this stuff also gets posted at libertarianinstitute.com slash Show and libertarianinstitute.com slash blog. And um, help support on Patreon at scotthorton.org slash donate at libertarianinstitute.org slash support at paypal.com slash scotthortonshow. Is that how it works? Something like that. Paypal.me slash scotthortonshow. I don't know. If you want. Anyway, have a good day, guys. Thanks. Oh, man, I forgot to talk about Rojava and the bogus Syrian nuclear weapons program of 2006. This is a total lie, dude. In fact, just Google Larissa. That's my wife. Just Google Larissa Syria nuclear and you'll see it's fake. Uh, she debunked all that for Raw Story back when they did journalism. But anyway, I'll get to that next time. Uh, the Syria, the, and in fact, Gareth Porter is working on this story right now, uh, re-debunking the myth of the Syrian nuclear weapons program from 2006. And then the Rojava thing, that's the whole thing about uh, Syrian Kurdistan. We'll have to get to that next time. Thanks.